Welcome to Medicare Connect Radio, sponsored by Millennium Physician Group. I'm Michelle McCormick. Each week, we talk about the healthcare issues that are important to you, whether you're 65 or older, maybe approaching 65, or you're making healthcare decisions for a loved one who's in their golden years. We're inviting providers and experts to share insights to help you take control of your healthcare decisions. Well, every spring, the flowers bloom, and along with the beautiful colors and smells comes the runny noses, itchy throats, and of course, headaches. How do we know if it's just allergies or maybe something more serious? In this episode, we're talking with a doctor about how to tolerate the outdoors as we move through the spring allergy season. But first, Millennium Physician Group has quickly become the leading independent physician group with more than 800 healthcare providers across Florida and growing. Services center on primary care and are complemented by specialty care, walk-in centers, radiology and lab services, telehealth, wellness programs, home health, hospital care, and so much more. Nationally recognized as a consistently top-rated accountable care organization with consistently high levels of physician engagement, Millennium aims to create a genuinely connected healthcare experience for patients, and we want to be your connection to a healthier life. You can learn more and find an office near you at millenniumphysician.com. Ah, springtime. The days are lighter longer. We want to be outside more than ever, but what about the allergy triggers that are just waiting to make your nose run, your throat hurt, and your eyes itchy? Our conversation today will touch on seasonal allergies and how to best handle that yellow stuff that coats our cars in the springtime. Joining us today is Dr. Alexander Farag. He's a a rhinologist, I'm probably going to butcher that, doctor, and skull-based surgeon. He's from HCA Florida in Orange Park, right here in Northeast Florida. Welcome to the show, Dr. Farag. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So um, give us a little bit of background about you and um, what led you to uh, to your special specialty that you do here at HCA. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's a great mentor. So I, um, I, I'm an Ohio boy, born and raised. I, um, I did my training, my residency down in North Carolina, UNC Chapel Hill, did my fellowship in Pennsylvania, and then I took my first faculty job um, at Ohio State in academics. So I was uh, kind of on the academic route, got promoted pretty quickly, and we were, you know, top-ranked program number three in the country. When it comes to skull-based rhinology, we were, you know, arguably the leaders. And so I had an opportunity to come down here and, and build something, and so that's why I came down here. Um, you know, trained residence fellows, had two fellows a year, we had 25 residents, and so came down here for the opportunity to try to build something. And yeah, so, how long have you been in the region? Um, about a year. So uh, from, just came down. Yeah, straight from Ohio, huh? Yeah, straight from my faculty position to here to try to build a program. That's awesome. Do do people give you a hard time for down here from being from Ohio, o- you know, Ohio State? <laughs> you know, not so much because I feel like, you know, Florida in general, I feel like I meet more people from Ohio than in Ohio, right? I feel like everybody's fleeing from Ohio, but yeah, there's definitely the Gators Buckeyes rival, right? Um, Big time. So, so that's that's definitely there. But you know, we kind of cross pollinate, not to do too many puns, <laughs> but with uh, with Urban Myers in more ways than one, right? That is so. so true. Well, welcome to Florida. I'm sure when you um, arrived down here, perhaps you found that there are different uh, pollens and different trees yeah. that trigger. Let's talk a little bit about um, allergies and even like not just seasonal but regional. Yeah. Well. I mean, you know, every area has different grass, trees, and molds, and, you know, there's there's different flowering seasons. Here, one of the prices of being in such a beautiful part of the country is, you know, it's usually green all the time, right? So, and with the rain and everything, there's usually a higher amount of pollen and humidity down here than there are in other parts of the country. And, you know, when it comes to seasonal allergies, that can be a little more brutal for people. You know, the flowering and the pollination seasons are sometimes longer. There's a, there's a lot of wind, so the pollen can travel further. And, you know, our lifestyles actually are are a little different down here. We're outdoors a lot more. You know, if you would ask me in Ohio, I was outdoors a lot. I would have told you, heck yeah. But you know, here I like eat dinner 
almost every night outside, right? And I maybe use my deck like four times a year in Ohio, right? And so there's just no comparison. You're just immersed in nature and you're outdoors just, in, in my opinion, a lot more down here. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt. I came from Texas, which was a concrete jungle, but a hot one too. And, mm -hmm. and you know, the green here definitely is a lot more inviting in general. I, I find that for me, I've been here 23 years and I always feel like I get that sinus infection or, you know, mm -hmm. the allergies in the springtime. So is, is there one, one time of year that, that is more rampant? Well, I think you really have to uh, tailor it to the patient, right? And so we know geographically, when you talk about allergy testing, different grasses, trees, and molds. And so we talk, typically have panels. And so when we allergy test you, we test you to find out against the common antigens, do you react? But just because we don't elicit a response and your allergy test is negative doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have allergies. It just simply means we're not able to identify them. You know, and so when it comes to those types of allergies, there's different ways, there's different levels I like to think about it. First one, the most conservative way is essentially allergy avoidance, right? And so that's where you start using hypoallergenic pillows. You can use HIPAA filters. If you're fortunate enough to have a central AC, replacing the filter often in your AC. Um, and then there are other types of behaviors to limit your exposure to the pollen. So maybe you don't want to stay outside so much in certain months, depending on how your pollen is. Maybe you don't want to dry your clothes out, uh, hanging them on a, on a clothing wire, whatever that's called. Mm -hmm. I'm blanking on the name. No, you got um, it. Or, a clothing um, line. Yeah. Clothing line. Thank you. Or, um, or, you know, the other thing is, is, you know, something that's really helpful is washing your hair maybe before you go to bed because your hair can absorb a lot of pollen. And so if you put your head down on your pillow and then roll around in it, well, you're getting a higher dose of that pollen. So simple avoidance, things like that um, can, can greatly increase. And then we start talking about, you know, medications. There are antihistamines and there are some nasal sprays and, and then we can talk about immunotherapy. And so, you know, you go higher and higher on the levels in terms of medical management, depending on people's symptoms. Right. And at what point does um, a patient make it into your office? You know, after they've been to the primary care, the primary care is like, you know, we've, we've tried the, the Flonase or whatever, the nasal sprays mm -hmm. and, um, you know, my daughter had um, had the nose surgery done last summer. Uh, I can't think. My I just drew a blank. Sinus surgery, yeah. So she did. turbinate, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they put these funky tubes in her in her nose. And I think for the first, it had finally reached that point that she needed that. And so that's just it. After medicine is usually surgery, right? And so, um, so it really depends on what your problem is and what your symptoms are. So, um, you know, one of the simplest things: breathing better. So, you know, if medicines don't work, that's where surgery is. If you have a deviated septum, your turbinates are big, you know, we can go ahead and, and straighten the septum. Now, in my clinic, you know, we show everyone their nose before surgery and after surgery. So there's no question if it's straight or not. Right. And then you really have to, based on, you know, whether it's smell loss or sinus infections or number of infections or drainage, um, you tailor your therapy accordingly. So when it comes to sinusitis, you know, I tell my patients, you can think of your sinuses like a whole bunch of rooms in your head. And all those rooms have doorways. And all those doorways open up into the hallway that's your nose. So as you get more swelling, whether it's viruses or pollen, those little doors keep opening and closing. And as those doors keep opening and closing, eventually they can slam shut and stay shut. And when you do that, that's when you need surgery to reopen the doors. And it's not just kicking a hole in the room, like you actually have to widen the doors. That's why it's called functional sinus surgery, mm -hmm. um, because the plumbing actually matters. So you have to fix the plumbing in order to get the nose 
to work the way it used to. And so that's the point behind sinus surgery. Yeah. And, you know, I think these days uh, and we got to talk about that is is COVID that a lot of like the traditional itchy eyes and headache and sniffles, you, know, you used to be able to say oh, sinusitis, you know, I'm just going to, you know, take a Benadryl, you know, whatever. But now I think COVID kind of throws a, a, it must throw a little monkey wrench into a diagnosis. Well, it does, but it, it changes things. I mean, you know, we're all going to learn a lot from this. Smell loss traditionally had affected older gentlemen, was linked with neurocognitive diseases such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, things like that, Huntington's disease. Um, and not a lot of research was done on it. Because of COVID, a lot more a lot more research is being done on it. And smell loss is funny in that the way you smell is almost kind of like a fingerprint. And we can kind of go down whole smell loss and all that. But to get back to your question in terms of how it can, you know, convolute the picture of sinusitis, you know, there are other things other than just smell loss uh, that go on to it. Um, you know, a lot of facial pain and pressure, drainage, um, number of infections, you know, fatigue, so other things. Uh, in COVID, in terms of that, you know, we're le- learning that there are, you know, sub uh, there are subcategories of it you know a highly inflammatory response there are you know pulmonary issues even long term there's long covid we're seeing neurocognitive we're seeing cardiac anomalies so we still have a lot of learning to understand everything about covid and how it does there is some you know uh convolution or it gets a little cloudy a little bit but um but for the most part we're able you know with a good physical exam good history endoscopy medications able to to kind of parse the two out yeah, um, I remember when I had COVID, I had it really early. It was in like September 2020, and I, I had the five-day loss of smell and taste. And now mm-hmm. when I talk to coworkers or friends who have COVID, they're not experiencing that same uh, same feature, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of theories as to why that is. You know, it could be that, you know, we're starting to get herd immunity. It could be that people are clearing the virus and not getting the, the viral burns. It could be that it's mutating and it's not as virulent. It could be that it doesn't have as high affinity for different nerves because it's changed. I mean, there's, there's and we go on with the theories, but they right. are theories, right? And so, I mean, some of the best data out of Europe, I mean, we're looking at it, but th- we still have a lot to learn, right? Um, until it's, there's a good paper that shows its mechanism and, and all of that, but I'm, I'm certainly not aware of that, that paper. I know there's a lot of active research in it, though. Yeah, so when we return, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Alexander Fareg, a rhinologist and skull-based surgeon from HCA Florida Orange Park. So be sure to stick around. Medicare Connect Radio, sponsored by Millennium Physician Group, will be right back. Welcome to Medicare Connect Radio, sponsored by Millennium Physician Group. I'm Michelle McCormick. Each week, we talk about the healthcare issues that are important to you, especially if you're 65 or older, maybe approaching 65, and maybe you're making healthcare decisions for a loved one who's in their golden years. We're inviting providers and experts to share insights to help you take control of your healthcare decisions. Well, every spring, the flowers bloom, and along with the beautiful colors and smells comes the runny noses, itchy throats, and headaches. How do we know if it's just allergies or something more serious? We are talking with Dr. Alexander Farag, a rhinologist and skull base surgeon from HCA Florida, Orange Park. And in the first segment, doctor, we talked a, a little bit about, you know, what are the allergies? What are the regional ones that we have a lot of wind and we have a lot of greenery around here. So, um, you know, let's let's talk about the point when someone comes to see you in your office and, you know, they've exhausted everything. We touched a little bit about the surgeries that you do, but what about the chronic sinusitis? Yeah. So chronic sinusitis, um, you know, often you need to have a multimodality approach in addition to medicine is surgery. And so um, we do functional sinus surgery. 
So I tell my patients, you know, a lot of people have really scary stories about sinus surgery. And I tell my patients, you know, it's an outpatient procedure. Come in, go home the same day, no black and blue, no packing, nothing like that. Um, it really shouldn't be painful. My average patient's pain requirement is one narcotic pain pill, so more than half don't need any. And so really the point of that surgery is to fix the plumbing. Um, um, you can essentially think of sinus surgery as hitting the reset button, getting the disease burden down, fixing the plumbing so that we can get, we can deliver medications and we can allow the sinus mucosa to act normally. Usually people who will benefit from this are people who, you know, can't smell well, people who are getting a lot of uh, infections greater than three or four a year. They're lasting for weeks on end, you know, four, five, six weeks, 12 weeks, you know, things like that, always needing antibiotics. Leading up to surgery, some things we do to try to keep people out of surgery is culture-directed antibiotics. So when people get an infection, we will get a culture uh, we'll grow it kind of in a petri dish, and then we'll know what antibiotics kill it and what species it is, and so people can get over their infections quicker with less antibiotics. Mm -hmm. My husband had to have uh, the sinus surgery years ago because um, apparently he had like a, the sinuses above his eyes were just filled, and mm -hmm. it, could, it could never break up, never break up. He he did the saline rinses and everything like over and over and over, and they're like, "You're a great candidate. Let's have this done." And, and, you know, this was, oh gosh, maybe 10, 12 years ago that he had it done. You know, is that something, once it's done, can it come back? It can't, it really depends. So one thing that's an outlier in this area is called allergic fungal sinusitis. So it's this allergic mucin that grows. It's kind of almost like uh, Jeff's chunky peanut butter, right? And so it's this large immunogenic response to fungus that basically has that consistency of chunky peanut butter. And it has to literally be pulled out. That's highly inflammatory. And so if you're able to get all of that out, um, most of those patients actually don't need sinus surgery again. However, I tell a lot of my patients who have mucosal dysfunction, um, and that's most people with chronic sinusitis, whether they have nasal polyps or not, um, that the lining in their nose is what doesn't work correctly. And so once you have sinus surgery, it is only a matter of time before you're going to need sinus surgery again. And I tell my patients, our goal is decades to never between mm -hmm. sinus surgeries. So if we are able to do medicines and rinses and, and follow you closely, our hope is it's in, you know, 50 years or 80 years, you're going to need your repeat sinus surgery, right? Um, but, and I have some people who are like, look, doc, surgery wasn't bad, you know, uh, I'll just see you for the next surgery. I'll see you in a couple of years. I don't want to take all these medicines. And then I have other patients who are like, look, surgery wasn't bad, but, you know, I'll do all the medicines. And so, and some of it has to be tailored to them, right? Mm -hmm. It really, it comes down to, you know, people's, the disease process they have is a combination of their genetics with their environment, right? And when you put all those together, I mean, it really has to be personalized to them and also their goals and their lifestyles. You know, some people can't, they can't do a bunch of medicines. They're sometimes too busy or they can't do shots or they can't do something. So it's really, what can you improve their quality of life the most while also um, achieving their goals? Yeah, I was going to ask about allergy shots. I know when I was growing up, my dad, like every month, would go in for his allergy shots and it would, you know, I guess work for a month. He wasn't hacking and, and blowing his nose all the time. Is that still um, something used daily? Yeah. I mean, monthly or with patients? Well, so immunotherapy, it all really just depends, right, again, on the patient. So if we were going to speak generally speaking, it really depends on how allergic you are. But essentially, you have to get up to maintenance. So someone who's super allergic, you know, that might be a shot once a week for you know, several weeks or months to get up to maintenance. And then you have to get a shot, you know, every couple of weeks, uh, depending on your maintenance schedule, every three weeks, four weeks, something like that. Uh, and so for some people, it's just a time commitment. You know, there's a new form of allergy, we call it immunotherapy. Um, allergy shots are ones, but there's sublingual therapy where you can put drops under the tongue, 
the nice thing about that is, is you could put those vials under your tongue at home, not as much as a time commitment. But last I checked, not every insurance approves it. So that's a cost out of pocket, mm. right? So it, it all really depends. And, you know, um, I mean, I work here and I don't know that I have time for shots, right? And so it, it, it all really just depends on what people's goals are. Some people are terrified of shots. Um, so like I said, it, it really depends on what your goals are. Sometimes shots are one of your best options, but again, it depends on the patient. And how do you know what you're allergic to? Like, are you, is everyone allergic to dust mites, you know, or, you know, it's like. <laughs> it's certainly popular, right? <laughs> it is certainly something that people will react to. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the, the, basically the way we find out if you're allergic, it's kind of an old school way. We, we introduce, we call it an antigen. We introduce uh, something that you might react to, whether it's pollen or dust or something. And one of the most common ways is we, we poke you with it in your skin and we see, um, how big of a reaction do you have? And we kind of measure that. And so that's how we can tell. But those are panels, right? So it's impossible for us to test you with everything in your environment, right? But there are the most common things. Of course, you mentioned, you know, dust. Of course, that's on almost every single panel because <laughs> that is something that a lot of people react to. Um, you laugh, but you're, you're right on, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's that's how we do allergy testing. Yeah, I know my my daughter was like she went in, she did an allergy test. She's and she's it goes to FSU, so she was in Tallahassee and she was miserable. And it's like okay, go just go find an allergist. We'll we'll take care of it. She called me up. She was livid. I'm allergic to dust mites. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm sorry, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like she wanted like to be allergic to something really tangible yeah. so that she knew how to fix it. And uh, she came back with, she's, I'm never getting that done again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I'm like, I'm sorry, honey. <laughs> so what about, um, do you do a lot with, with throats? Like with, um, in your practice, do you, the tonsils and, and, and all that? Yeah, we do do that. Um, so yeah, tonsillectomies, stuff like that. Those are kind of run, general run of the mill stuff that we do, but you know, I'm not a, we call them laryngologists, a voice doctor. Mm -hmm. So high end voice stuff, like for singers and how the vocal cords come and, and high end swallowing. Um, that's not, that's not a area of focus of mine. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of drainage with that too, though. And that, yes. does that start with you and then it drains no, down the throat? It, it absolutely does. And so there are multiple things that can cause drainage. You know, the way we sense on the inside is very different from the outside. It's kind of like an on off switch on the inside. You cannot tell the difference between a cut on the voice box, a foreign body, mucus sitting on top, or even an acid burn. So again, I mean, we absolutely examine the voice box. Sometimes post-nasal drainage is coming from the sinuses. Other times it's coming from other sources or another pathological process. And so again, identifying those processes, getting people to the right treatment, um, that's important. And then employing other subspecialists when needed, um, you know, whatever it takes to get the patient to their endpoint. Yeah, right. And I guess that relates to the ears part, the E part of an ENT. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, with and, and ears can be a whole nother, like, uh, beast, I'm sure, in what you're dealing with. No, it is. Um, you know, high-end uh, ENTs who do that do an extra, it's a two-year fellowship, neurotology fellowship. Yeah, so. I'm sure. All right. Well, um, Dr. Alexander Farag, a rhinologist and skull-based surgeon from HCA Florida Orange Park. We're going to continue the conversation in just a little bit. We're going to talk some more about the skull-based surgeon part of, of what you do. So definitely stick around. Medicare Connect Radio, sponsored by Millennium Physician Group. We'll be right back. 
Welcome to Medicare Connect Radio, sponsored by Millennium Physician Group. I'm Michelle McCormick. Each week, we talk about healthcare issues that are important to you. If you're 65 or older, maybe approaching 65 or taking care of someone who's in their golden years, we're inviting providers and experts to share insights to help you take control of your healthcare decisions. Well, we've been talking about seasonal allergies. Now, we're going to switch gears for this segment. We're our guest, uh, Dr. Alexander Farag, is also a skull-based surgeon. So, all right, doctor, let, let's talk about that. What exactly, I mean, I hear skull and I hear base and I hear surgeon. So let's talk about a little bit about what all that entails. So I guess a, a simple way to say that is I take brain tumors and eye tumors out through the nose. So minimally invasive approaches to the base of the skull. So where the brain sits, the interface between the brain and the other structures around it. So a large part space that occupies it is not only the eyes, the sinuses, but then there are other structures um, that occupy it. And so essentially, we also do do that stuff open. So traditionally, when people would have brain tumors, they'd have a craniotomy, which means an incision from ear to ear going on top of the head. Um, we would peel the face forward, we'd remove the skull, and then we'd have access to the brain. Uh, the problem with skull-based tumors was is that you had to put a retractor on the brain, and then it would take several hours to take them out. You had to devascularize to take the tumors out. And so on average, after an open approach to a skull-based tumor, patients were in the ICU intubated for two weeks. You know, then they'd be in the hospital for, you know, two to four weeks. And then they usually have to go to rehab, you know, learn how to walk, different things, swallow, eat. And so, and sometimes we do have to do open, but a lot of times we're able to do minimally invasive. You know, technology's changed a lot with, you know, our scopes and our instrumentation. We literally have, I don't know, three, 400 different instruments that we'll employ uh, during a case. It allows us to kind of get everywhere we need to. And so essentially we're able to take brain tumors out through the nose. We do our craniotomies endoscopically. Again, sometimes we do have to open um, and patients do better remarkably faster. We're able to take tissue from inside the nose to reconstruct the interface between the brain and different areas uh, so that the brain stays where it's supposed to and we can remove mm. the tumors. And so the translation is, is people walk out of the hospital in like three, four days. You know, you're in the ICU overnight. Like we just did a clival resection yesterday. Patient has squamous cell carcinoma. Clivus is the bone that's in front of the brainstem. And pretty much every single structure is around it that comes out. So in that area of the brainstem, it's all of your cranial nerves, everything from the way your face smiles to the way your eyes move to your sense of smell to how you stick out your tongue to how you shrug your shoulders, right? Um, it all runs there. Plus, that is the confluence of both your anterior circulation, so that's bilateral carotids, as well as your posterior circulation. So that's your vertebrals and the basilar, right? So there are basically three vessels that really supply the brain, right? The basilar up the back of the brainstem, and then your two internal carotids. Those are the main blood supplies. Um, and so, you know, the clivus has all of them right there. And so removing that bone, you can understand how that's pretty high price. This guy had a, he had a recurrent malignancy that we had to remove. And, you know, we did that yesterday and he's walking and talking, trying, talking about getting out of there. And I'm like, look, my friend, like, you know, you just had a pretty big brain surgery. Let's take this one day at a time. He's like, well, can I go to work next week? Oh, let's, I was like, again, you need to relax. Um, wow. we, were able to, we were able to reconstruct the area. We took abdominal fat grafts. We take, we take some uh, fascia from the muscle of his leg and recreate, we had to remove the dura. So we recreate the dura that way. And then we're able to put a, a fat graft and then a vascularized flap. So you know, he's walking, talking, no change in his speech. He has no double vision. He's, he's doing great. Other tumors we take out, we do rare tumors. So like esthesios, you know, again, a woman had a 7.4 centimeter brain tumor and she was out of the hospital in seven days. Mm. Right. And so people are able to, and you know, I mean, that's a malignancy too. So of course she needed radiation after that. 
Um, so we do that thing. We can also be pretty aggressive with the orbit. We get 270 degrees of access to the orbit. So around the optic nerve, things like that. Again, no external incisions, or sometimes we'll do a canthotomy, which means under the eyelid, we'll make an incision. It's not usually visible. Um, but sometimes, you know, we do a two surgeon approach. Most of the times, this is always a team. So I work with a neurosurgeon or an ophthalmologist or both. And, you know, we work as a team. So it's kind of like a dance. Um, you start to know where people are in different different times in the case and in space. And, and it's essentially like you have four or six hands. Um, and so you're able to be way more efficient and, and do some really, really fun stuff. How fascinating, fascinating that you're taking out tumors through the nose. You know, first of all, that's huge. And wow. How is something like that diagnosed? I mean, how do you get to the point where the tumor on that one gentleman that you were working on? I mean, how is that even how do you know before it becomes too late? Well, sometimes they'll present with, uh, you know, some sort of nerve palsy, a nerve will be out, or headaches, or or a lot of times it's nasal obstruction. Um, uh, this gentleman, the reason he presented is he'd been surveillance for a rare type of cancer. He had recurred, and then uh, his doctors were very attentive to that and then got him right in. And then, you know, we got him diagnosed, restaged him, and, and took the tumor out um, pretty quickly. So his doctors were really attentive on that one. The other tumors, you know, people will come in. Um, sometimes they present with a brain fluid leak, so salty metallic taste. Sometimes it's really bad headaches. Um, sometimes it's through the ER, something changed. Sometimes it's a nosebleed that won't stop, you know. Unfortunately, when it comes to brain tumors of those of those, those types, um, there's nothing obvious uh, that will really tell you about it. On average, people are delayed by about six months when they have those types of things. So uh, having a really good primary care doctor, things like that, um, you know, getting your regular checkups um, are something that's really helpful. Yeah, and I can. When you're having a problem, you know, sinusitis or, or stuff like that. A lot of times they're picked up that way. You know, people are getting sinus infections and, and we find other things. Yeah. In other words, you know, go, go see your doctor, <laughs> you know, bottom yeah. line. Do you use MRI, CAT scan? What is, what is yeah. the imaging that you're using? So it depends. So on most of those bigger ones. So yes, we do do MRI and CT. We'll even fuse them. And so interopt, um, we'll have kind of like a, a print uh, or a map of your head. And you can think of it almost like GPS for your head. So it allows us to make sure that we get an adequate full resection. It allows us to look at the pertinent anatomy on our approaches, make sure that you know, we preserve as much as we can. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, um, it's high stakes surgery. So we yeah. definitely use uh, a fair amount of technology. That is awesome. And you're doing that right here in yeah. at HCA Orange Park. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So it's, uh, it's been a goal to build kind of a center of excellence and, and kind of build the program here. And so that's, that's what we're doing. That's amazing. I love that. It's, uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's fascinating state of the art. I mean, are you using um, a, like a robot at all? Uh, so right now, the robots for these purposes are just not small enough. Um, people are developing. There are a couple uh, that are being developed. But right now, you know, since we don't make any external incisions and we do everything through the two nostrils, there's really only so much so much stuff you can get in there. Articulating arms aren't quite small enough. There are some really impressive scopes that can start to bend around corners and, and things like that that we're starting to employ. But it's still, you know, bimanual. And also, you know, the ability, like, a lot of it when you operate is tactile feel. Like you can feel the tissues as you traverse each layer. Um, and so you start to know what tumors like, and that's, that's really hard uh, to replicate in the robot. Oh, um, I'm sure. So in this area and also um, robots don't move. The degrees of freedom that you have with a robot when you operate with it, you just, you can't get those, those very micro movements. Mm -hmm. And so skull-based surgery is a lot of, it's really micro surgery. 
And yeah. so, you know, uh, three millimeters to the left, you're in the carotid, a millimeter up, you're in the optic nerve, patient's blind, right? So you really don't have a lot of room for, you really need smooth mo- movement, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, especially when you're drilling. When you're drilling and taking those things out and using a high-speed drill that goes 75,000 RPMs, um, you know, you really do need precision. Yeah, and you're doing all that through the nose, through the nostrils. Yeah. 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 Do you ever have to rebuild a nose after you get yes. a tumor out? Oh, yeah. Sometimes uh, we will have to do that depending on, it depends on what's gone. So sometimes you need a rib or you need ear cartilage or, or something along those lines to, to rebuild a nose. Um, when it comes to a nose, you know, there's multiple layers. So it really depends on what's gone. Not only do you need the inside lining of the nose, you also need the structure and you need the skin on top, right? So you need at least three layers. So, so yeah. And so it, it just depends. So sometimes we'll use, you know, there's a pedicle flap on your forehead that we can swing down to recreate the skin part and as well as the lining. And then a lot of times we'll incorporate some sort of structure. So whether it's the ear or the bone from the rib or, or something along those lines. So again, it, it really depends on, on what needs to be done. So what you're talking about removing the nose is known as a rhinectomy. And so, yeah, when it comes to oncological care, whatever we need to do. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Alexander Farag, a uh, school-based surgeon and a rhinologist, what, um, how can we get in touch with you and learn more about what you're doing at HCA Florida Orange Park? Yeah, I mean, the best way is, is uh, just go ahead and give our office a call. Um, I actually don't know that I have the number in front of me to tell you. That's all right. We'll figure it out. People can search but, it online. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on in and we, you know, try to tailor the uh, your disease process and come up with a treatment plan, give you a diagnosis. We try to make it pretty seamless so that you come in, whether you need a CT scan or, or imaging or something like that, we can get that done and close to one shot so that, you know, we have minimal impact on people's lifestyles and we can get you to your solution and your endpoint as, as quickly and expeditiously as possible. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate your time today. I appreciate you uh, t- talking us through that that intensive, amazing surgeries that you're doing there. Dr. Alexander Fareg, thank you so much for joining us today on Medicare Connect Radio. Well, thank you for having me. Coming up next, we're going to continue our conversation and talk to a primary care physician about how allergy season is in full swing. Medicare Connect Radio, sponsored by Millennium Physician Group, will be right back. Welcome to Medicare Connect Radio, sponsored by Millennium Physician Group. I'm Michelle McCormick. Each week, we talk about the healthcare issues that are important to you. If you're 65 or older, approaching 65, or maybe you just are making the healthcare decisions of a loved one, we invite providers and experts to share insights to help you take control of your healthcare decisions. Well, every spring, the flowers bloom, and along with the beautiful colors and smells comes, of course, runny noses, itchy throats, and headaches. How do we know if it's just allergies or something more serious? In this episode, we've been talking with an ENT. Now we're going to talk to Dr. Santosh Kamath from the Millennium Physician Group office in Sun City, Florida. Doctor, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michelle, for having me on. Um, yeah, I've been uh, in this, practicing in the state of Florida for about 12 years, all over from Miami to Lakeland to Jacksonville, and uh, now in Palmetto. I've been doing a lot of work as a hospitalist in the last five, six years or so, but recently uh, transitioned to the office and doing more traditional practice, seeing patients in the office, and then following them to the hospitals and nursing homes. Yeah, that's, that keeps you pretty busy, I'm sure. <laughs> so I appreciate your time today. So talking about allergies, you know, it's, it's, it's prevalent, especially in the state of Florida. Um, recent data says more than 50 million Americans suffer from allergies each year. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about that, that runny nose and, and what causes it. 
Right. You know, at this time of year, not only in Florida, but uh, across the country, really, it's caused by pollen, you know, pollen from grass, trees, weeds, keeping the windows open, uh, you know, as the weather gets warmer, more breezy kind of thing. It's also caused by mold spores and humidity, you know, that uh, high humidity is uh, another issue. And uh, usually, the course is variable. Some people have allergies starting at childhood and it seems to be seasonal occurring. There can be sometimes a family or a genetic component to that as well. Um, but it's a nuisance, no question. Yeah, and what exactly is pollen? What, what generates pollen? I, I believe it's just a, you know, a, a component of, you know, looks at grass and weeds and things like that that get into the, the air and uh, can trigger an allergic response or body to have, like you said, you know, runny nose, watery eyes and, and so on. Yeah, I think, you know, there's bees and bees move things from, from plant to plant. And, and as much as bees freak us out, you know, we, we can use the bees for, for that as well because they're doing their thing in, uh, in their society as well. But I know oak trees are a very prevalent uh, factor for allergies. You know, my daughter has, has runny noses all the time. She's like, I'm allergic to everything. At, at your level of care, how do you determine that allergy? Right. So again, you know, if it's a seasonal allergy, it's something that'll flare up for a period, you know, a couple of weeks. And it's something that, again, when you, when we uh, talk to the patients and take a history, we, we know that, Hey, they've had this in the past or their parents have had this in the past or a sibling has had it in the past. Um, and that helps guide the diagnosis depending on the extent of the, uh, you know, depending on how severe the condition is and how recurrent it is, there certainly are, you know, a variety of, um, uh, tools we have to treat that. A lot of them are, you know, uh, antihistamines, many of which are available over the counter. And, you know, when you know you're approaching allergy season a couple of weeks before, people would, some people start, uh, you know, taking Claritin or uh, Zyrtec or Allegra. And after a couple of weeks, they do, they do okay with it and really don't need much more. Um, if it becomes a recurrent problem, if it's not controlled with those over-the-counter medications, you know, that's when definitely got to arrange some kind of visit um, to see. Thank you, Dr. Kamath, for joining us today. You can find Dr. Kamath at our Sun City Center office. You can call 813-634-6880. The conversation will continue next time on Medicare Connect Radio. We also know you have questions about Medicare enrollment, and we have answers. Learn the Medicare basics, discover the latest plan options, compare coverage, and enroll. Whether you're almost 65 or maybe you've been covered for years, live your best life with Millennium Medicare Connect. Just go to yourmedicareconnect.com or millenniumphysician.com to find a primary care provider near you. In good health, I'm Michelle McCormick. Have a great day.